I'm Chad Main, the founder of Legal Services Company Percipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology and innovation in the legal industry. Today's episode, I talked to Nicole Clark. She's a co-founder of Trellis, which is a state court data analytics app. If you've listened to more than a couple episodes of this podcast, you can pretty quickly figure out that we land some very smart people as guests. Today's guest is no different. It's Nicole Clark, who's the co-founder of Trellis, which is an app that analyzes state trial court data. How smart is she? Well, she started college at 16, so I'd say that's pretty sharp. Before she launched Trellis, Nicole was working as a litigator in L.A. Her aha moment to create the app happened when she was burning the midnight oil trying to finish a pleading she needed to get on file for a client. As is often the case in law firms, Nicole sent out the obligatory, hey, has anyone been in front of this judge, email. She sent the email to learn more about the judge and the judge's background. Well, it's a good thing she did, because come to find out, a colleague of hers had been in front of that judge, and in fact, had been in front of that judge on the very same legal issue Nicole was working on. It was that night that Nicole, like founders and entrepreneurs since the beginning of time, said to herself, there's got to be a better way. Specifically, Nicole asked herself, why isn't there a database of background information about state court judges? It was then and there that the seed for Trellis was planted. Eventually, Nicole hired a developer to create a bare-bones app and used her law firm as guinea pigs. And it worked. Trellis became a reality and started attracting users outside Nicole's law firm. Eventually, Nicole and the Trellis team got into Techstars LA and started raising money. And the rest, as they say, is history. Well, technically, history in the making. As we will hear, Nicole and the Trellis team have a lot of big plans they have yet to execute on. I saw that you're a fan of Ben Horowitz's book, Hard Things About Hard Things. I really like that book. You know, it, it wasn't all rah-rah. Like he, he set out like it was and he gave you real tips about, you know, hiring your friends or maybe if you hire a CEO for a company this size, it might not be good for that size. I thought that was really interesting. I think where I read it, you suggest people to startups read that. What do you like about it? What's your main takeaway from it? I think that there's generally a sort of romanticized idea of what building a startup is and how, especially from the the outside sort of optics of other people and the businesses that they've built. And it's just really nice to have someone sort of uh, come back and remind everyone that if you're building something and it is very difficult, that is supposed to feel that way. It is not easy. It is not only a hard thing, but it's all of the different hard things about doing really hard things. And so I'm really sort of resonated with the idea that we're celebrating the fact that it is difficult what we're doing and sort of relishing in how do we learn, how do we get better during that process? Because no one is born knowing how to do all this stuff. There is no playbook. We're writing it, right? So um, yeah, I, I just generally loved the realist in, in Ben. You know, you, you raise a good point, although in the moment, it's not that fun. But yeah, it is It is good to step back and celebrate the fact that you are doing something hard. You know, I've learned that building our business. When you're the thick of things, it ain't so easy to, to think that the difficulty's fun, you know? It doesn't even mean that if it's difficult, it isn't fun. It just means that it's not supposed to be easy, period, right? <laughs> it's good to remember that. If it's not easy, that that's okay. You're probably on track, you know? I, like you, left the, the practice a lot to launch a company. That's been my one thing I will tell people. You know, you do need some sort of naivete, I guess, yes. <laughs> to even make the jump. But it's a hell of a lot harder than you think it's going to be, you know. And I, but it's fun. You're right. It's, it's fun, the difficulty. So I definitely agree. I think you see that early with, with founders, that there's no way that we would have done this if we knew exactly. really what the journey was going to be from the start, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. 
Did I also see you started college at 16? I did. How'd that happen? <laughs> the honest origin story was I went to a program that was, I grew up in California. It was called CESA, California State Summer School for the Arts. And basically, they took five different types of art, sort of creative writing, uh, music, poetry. And it was this really selective application process where they brought together the best folks in each of the arts. And we, for a month, just worked on our, whatever our outlet was. And I had such an incredible experience there. And the people that I was surrounded with and everyone was so inspirational that the idea of going back to sort of traditional high school after that makes sense to me. And I actually had friends at the program tell me like, look, there are these alternatives to go to college early now. And I happened to pursue one of them and then, uh, you know, went to basically a, an offshoot of Bard College early at 16. And it was a great, great decision for me. I can't speak to everyone. I think it's a very personal choice as to whether to go a traditional route or, or to do something different, but it was definitely right for me. So you say there were some arts involved, music, art. Did you specialize? or I was creative writing. <laughs> creative writing. Oh, that's, that was, that was going to be my next question. It makes sense. Creative writing. How do you get to law school? But the writing, I mean, there's something you like about it. There that. is something there. I actually, my, my degree was in journalism and I very quickly graduated and, and recognized that that was going to be a very difficult career to earn any sort of living. <laughs> so I, I started to sort of do cost benefit analysis of what were other options where I could still write and be creative um, and, and produce and legal seemed like one of them. It was sort of an offshoot of I jumped in and it turned out that I loved law school. So really, really lucky that's not necessarily the case. And I, I definitely think folks should take a lot into consideration if they're wanting to go to law school and take a, a legal path. But for me, I ended up loving law school. It didn't obviously follow the traditional uh, career path of a lawyer for me, but it did for a while. And no, no regrets on going to law school. Before you launch Trellis, yep. you're a litigator. Yes. The aha moment, I want you to tell a story about the history, but I want to open the, the, the question. Your aha moment, I was a litigator too. We've all done this. Hey, I got a case in front of Judge XYZ. What do you know about him? You sent it to the firm. <laughs> yep. And correct me if I'm wrong, you do this on a case mm -hmm. and come to find out one of your colleagues down the hall was in front of that judge not too long before that with your exact exactly. issue. And you had, you know, it was given to you a silver platter, but had you not sent that email, you never would have known. So you, you start to think about why isn't this information all in a database at a place people can access. But my question before we get into that, which is a really interesting story, is don't you think that's indicative of a bigger knowledge management problem for law firms in general, that they're not good at, all this information is coming through the door every day. They're not good at putting that in a uniform place for everybody to access. It definitely is indicative of a, of a larger problem. And I think it there's some generally sort of assumption that larger firms are going to be better at it. There's more information. They have more people to track this information. It's simply not true. I think that the larger firms are as hamstrung as the small boutiques with the inability to really think about, from a scalability standpoint, how to keep and classify and structure this data so that long-term they can actually benefit from it. So yes, there's no question that there's a, a larger knowledge management problem at, at law firms, ranging from small to large, where we see the problems, but everyone's got to bill hours and no one's going to go out of their way to do something that's not billable. We're not a particularly entrepreneurial, you know, risk-taking <laughs> uh, industry. And so it doesn't get done. And, you know, six months later, a year later, someone says, again, somebody should build a database out of this. And then we all go back to working. And so I, I really found that that was sort of the 
process and, and sort of routine that I kept seeing happen that just no one was doing it. So let's do it. Were you already thinking about this idea prior to that night when you were sent the email around? Or is that really when a light bulb came to be? I would say that's when the compulsion happened of, I can't not do this any longer. But I had been thinking about it before. I think from a variety of law firms that I was at, at first at smaller firms, I thought, okay, well, the reason that we're sending around an internal email to ask about information on the judge we've been assigned to, it must be a resources problem. It must be that these smaller firms just don't have the resources to be sort of uh, analyzing data. And then as I got to larger firms, I recognized, no, this was an industry problem. It just wasn't something lawyers were sourcing anecdotes and they were making huge strategic decisions based on those anecdotes. So I think for a while, as I was moving through my career, I couldn't believe that we weren't utilizing data more. And it was just sort of nagging at me. And then when I had that experience where I, I got a ruling by the judge I was in front of on my issue, on my motion, and it was like a playbook, right? I could see exactly how this judge thought about the issue. For me, that was when I could no longer ignore the fact that it didn't make sense, that I didn't have this to look at from the start. How was it possible that there was all of this practical data that all of our cases start in trial court, most cases don't make it to trial, and yet the only research we were utilizing was court of appeals data to you know, navigate really sort of academic data when, practically speaking, judges don't apply the law uniformly. A lot happens at the trial court level, and you know, it's, it's an idealized sort of approach to think that if I know the court of appeals law, I will be able to navigate this case successfully for my client, and it's simply not the case. Absolutely. That's something I think is overlooked that most of the law, day in and day out, has happened at that trial court level. Yep. Appeals are... That's, that's a minority. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great point. I want to get to the actual history and how you started making it while you're still at the law firm and testing it yourself. But for the listeners, let's put it in perspective. Give us your two-sentence outline of Trellis. What is it? Sure. So two-second is basically we are a state trial court data and analytics platform. So many folks know sort of Lexis and Westlaw, your giant incumbents in the space. They focus and really well focus on court of appeals and above. Also do well at the federal side where the data is really unified and, and structured. What no one has tackled yet and what Trellis really does is that state trial court system. And to understand and put it in perspective a little bit, right now, every single county uh, is really the king of their own fiefdom in how they host data, maintain data, number cases, classify case types, everything. So what happens is not only can you not find information in the county that you're actually appearing in, but no one is able to structure that data, look at it zoomed out to understand trend information analysis and be able to really draw insights from an entire state trial court system because it's fragmented across thousands of individual county court websites. And so that's what we're tackling. We're tackling really one unified interface to be able to search and understand the state trial court system where most of us are practicing. So let's talk about the origin story. You had that aha moment compelled to, to do this. What was the next step? How do you get it going? Ah, uh, you know, there's always, there, there's sort of luck and circumstances involved in, in everything. There's a lot of hard work and then combinations of those. So I obviously was a lawyer. I, I did not, I was not an engineer and you need an engineer, uh, particularly with really difficult data problems, which is what this is. And so I started complaining to really some of the smartest engineers that I knew and said, look, there is this entire uh, court system that has been ignored, that has data that hasn't been tapped yet. And 
first, sort of the engineers didn't believe me, right? It was, how is it possible that law isn't utilizing data the way other industries are? And after doing research, what we started to do was I had an engineer basically uh, start to pull data in the courts that I was appearing in most often. Which is L.A. County, right? Did you start with L.A. County? Started with L.A. County, uh, San Diego, Santa Barbara, Ventura, just a couple, right? Where sort of up and down Southern California, which is where most of my caseload was. And my practice ended up being, and also just the, what I was using at that point, imagine the most rudimentary, you know, but basically just a search engine on top of some data that was not structured yet. Or So it was a really an MVP when I was using it in practice. How many years ago was this? That was 2016. Okay, so still there was some data out there, but it's still limited. Yes. It's still limited what you can get. So what were you pulling? What were you having the engineers grab? Specifically in this case, since I was practicing in California, I was pulling a, a type of ruling called a tentative ruling. And it's unique to California. And what it is is basically the judge, the, the day before they uh, decide on your motion, they write analysis for why they're going to grant or deny your motion. And the judge's goal is to give the attorney that is appearing before them the ability to see what the judge cares about. So when you spend your two minutes in oral argument, which is really all you have, to try to at least make your case or create something on the record for appeal. The judge has really decided at that point, but it, the, the goal is to give you a little bit of the, the reasoning and rationale. But I looked at that as if we have judges giving us their substantive analysis on particular motions, particular issues, well, this is gold in terms of insight to uh, be able to formulate analysis both before the same judge and then also really across legal analysis to understand sort of how trial court judges are thinking at the time. So now that the tool I saw has one of the facets of it, it you can look at individual cases and the docket there. But when you started, it sounds like you were focused only on judges and what they were ruling. Correct. When we started, we were focused on basically searchable tentative rulings and only in California and really starting to prove it out to myself. So there wasn't any goal other than I'm going to use this data in my own practice and I'm going to validate. Is it going to be meaningful for me? That's step one to determine if this is going to be a business that can be built in the first place. And how long did you do that? How long did you use it yourself? So I had a good two years of really, I mean, motion practice changing dramatically for me. I was able to see that, you know, nothing had changed. I didn't become a genius or suddenly become the best, you know, motion drafter. I had information that allowed me to sort of navigate and tailor and target motions the way I could see the judge was thinking. And did it change your success rate? It absolutely did. So I went on during that two years to win every single motion that I had. Wow. And so for me, it was that that's when it became so obvious that the opportunity here, that this data was valuable. It was valuable. It was going to be valuable beyond uh, myself. I needed to bring it to other attorneys. And the opportunity was just much bigger than sort of continuing in a, a career as a litigator. Was anybody else at your law firm using this too? Or was it just you? So for so the first two years, it was just me. And then when I decided I was going to really start to take steps to, to, to build the company, then I started bringing on our earliest, earliest sort of alpha testers. And those were other attorneys at the firm that would use it and just give me feedback, right? We needed to, there, there's endless iteration. There's endless iteration now, let alone when, when you know, we were a sort of very nascent uh, product. So you need that. 
you, you need that feedback in order to make your product better. Did you have a UI at that point? I mean, you had to, to work with it, but obviously it wasn't as polished as it is now. What, what was what was it like? What was this alpha version like? You know, there it, it was thinking back on it, it, it it's, it's kind of comical. There was, you know, there was no sort of forward-facing website. No one would have known it existed. In order to set up an account, you had to do use your sort of forgot password because we hadn't set up the entire uh, system. So there was a lot of really sort of silly things that we had to, that we had a ton of work to do in order to be able to really bring it to market. When do you decide, all right, you know, we've got these alpha testers, they're liking it. We got to get serious about this. We're going to launch a company. We're going to create the UI. It's going to be SaaS. People can join themselves. When did you start that process in motion? So this would be now uh, 2018 is when I finally decided to jump. And, and I think, you know, 2016 was I had come up with the idea. I was validating it. And it took about two years of one validating for myself that this was something meaningful. I had a child, it was very scary to give up my career as a litigator. And I think almost that two years was just sort of me battling the courage to really jump and devote myself to this. And what I knew I couldn't do was litigate and simultaneously build the company. I wanted to, you know, that felt like the safer mode, but I knew the time constraints of my job as a litigator were not possible to be able to devote simultaneously. So I did everything I could for that two years. And then I said, you know, we need some early funding so that I can devote my time full time to really getting the product to market and our very first early customers. I think I saw somewhere you did a friends and family. We did. So our, our very first funding was friends and family. And then the law firm that I worked at at the time um, sort of connected the fact, you know, I, they hadn't known that I had been utilizing the, the platform. They just knew that I was having a really strong record. And when I left to say, look, I'm going to create the, this uh, product, they connected it and said, hey, why don't you start off with some offices on site with some of your engineers and iterate for a few months here at the firm directly with our attorneys? And so they really got sort of an insight, uh, early sort of building to suit. And we got the feedback that we needed, that iteration loop very, very early to be able to, to model and iterate the product. When we come back, Nicole talks about hiring her first engineer to start developing Trellis, the company's participation in LA Techstars, and their plans for the future. We're going to get back to my conversation with Nicole Clark, co-founder of Trellis, in just a second. But I want to let you know at tlpodcast.com, there's a dedicated episode page for every technically legal episode we do. On that page, you'll find more information about our guests and links to some of the stuff we talk about. Also, if you want to subscribe, you can find us pretty much wherever you get podcasts. And while you're there, if you like us enough, I hope you give us a favorable review and maybe tell a friend. All right, let's pick up my conversation with Nicole Clark, talking about hiring her first developer to start developing Trellis. So I started out with the only engineer that I knew. You know, it's funny to think about uh, now, but I had a very limited network at that point, right? I just, I didn't know engineers. Now I, I know so many and I have a, such a different insight into the industry, but I went to really the only engineer that I knew and we started. And then from there, once we got a little bit of funding, we brought on some early employees and really getting the, the tech leadership that has taken this company forward took a minute to find the right leadership. It's not something that comes together immediately. And what you need as a company at one stage is not what you need at a company as another stage. And it's important to understand that. When you got the money, where did you go to find the other engineers to build your team out? 
we used a platform called AngelList. Um, it's right. generally, honestly, it's filled with at this point a lot of uh, international folks. But the idea behind the platform is you want to work at startups or you work at startups. And this is sort of the platform to connect people that want to build startups. And you just mentioned your leadership team. Now, you have a co-founder who started DocStock. Yep. When does he come in the picture? What's his background? How do you know him? He came in late stage. So we joined uh, Techstars shortly after launching the platform and me jumping from practice. And I went on as a, as a solo founder for about a year um, with a small engineering team just sort of trying to run product. And there is a big communication gap between the, the business aspect and the engineering mind and all of the ideas that I have and how to actually put those into action for an engineering team to, to build. And so I, I was working with an executive coach at the time and she knew I was struggling and was really looking for the right technical co-founder to come on board. And she said, hey, I, I have someone that I think you should talk to. And she had actually worked for him at DocStock, so knew him well. And she thought, you know, there was a lot of similarities between DocStock and what we were building at Trellis. But really, he came on as a technical advisor to me at that time. And really for about six months to a year, just worked directly with the company as a, as a technical advisor. And it was during that time that the fit became so obvious and we worked together so well and the engineering team worked together well with him and then sort of coupling that with funding and company growth. And so he joined uh, right around, we would have been around 2019 uh, at that point. And there are some things where you can look back and say that was an inflection point for the company. And my co-founder, my technical co-founder, Alon Schwartz joining was absolutely an inflection point for growth for Trellis. You just mentioned you were in Techstars program, and I, I listened to the Just Go Grind podcast okay. episode you did, which, excellent. I encourage anybody in the startup world to listen to that because that was a great interview, and you, you went into more of the startup, less legal issues that we'll get in today, but, and I'll put a link to that on the episode page for this. But you said something interesting in that interview I wanted to ask you about Techstars. You said when you decided to go to Techstars or got accepted Techstars, you already had traction. So- what immediately came to my mind is, why do you do it? Well, if you had traction, why'd you join Techstars? Yeah, and I definitely think that it's a big decision for anyone that is at that point where potentially they they have the option to join an accelerator and they're starting to see early traction. I think for me, I was coming from being an attorney and I absolutely knew how much I didn't know in terms of the startup world. And so for me, the value was the mentorship and the guidance. And also I knew that I didn't have a network in VC and traditional venture capital. I didn't have um, you know, folks that from my prior career that I could call on. And so being able to start to build some of that network is essential for you if you're building a venture-backed company. If you're not, then it's not. And there's a lot of other ways to do this. But if you're going for a venture-backed company, being able to build the network is really, really important, both early on, because a lot of those early connections come in uh, later on during the growth of the company. That's interesting that you say that to build the network and stuff, because when, I think when most people think of incubators or tech stars, these programs, founders go in it maybe with, with an idea or maybe a prototype, and then that it changes a little bit and what comes out the other end is different. But you already you already had something going. Another thing interesting you said in that podcast is that just because you are come through Y Combinator or Techstars or what have you, it just doesn't start raining money. It's you are still obligated as a founder to get to get the money. 
Oh, absolutely. And, and I'll definitely say I went into it idealistic at that point. Like, oh, you know, we get the stamp of Techstars on us, the money reigns. And that's just what happens. We are funded sort of on the date of demo day period. And no, that's definitely not the situation. Um, and it's important when you're thinking about the value prop and the percent of the company that you're giving up that you know that you're, you're still the one at the end of the day that is going to have the conviction to get people to put money in or not. And and you can't rely on anyone else, no matter how big the name or how influential to, you know, they can make introductions, but you're responsible at the end of the day for closing it. You've had a couple rounds. When after Techstars or how long after Techstars did you get your first real piece of money? You know, it wasn't right away. We were still at that point, uh, young product, and I was starting to talk with investors you know, I thought we're in demo day, we'll get funded. And instead, I think our first funding came four months or so after the end of the program. And many of the investors that came in weren't even direct connections from, from Techstars. Some of them, you know, were introductions. So it it depends, but you never exactly know. And, and I really go with the amount, you're going to get no's. If you're doing something this hard, people are going to... They're, they're going to tell you that it's going to be hard, and then they're right. Um, and they'll tell you probably all the reasons that it won't work, and that that's okay. It's You can learn from everybody. There's always something to take away from what everyone says, but you also just have to know that you can get 100 no's, and I got at least 100 no's. But you, yeah, I was going to ask you, how many? usually people keep track. How many no's did you get? Oh, man. It would have been, I, honestly, it's probably around, a, it has to be at least 100 at that point. I mean, because we had, we had been introduced by Techstars to so many investors, and we had the difficulty of having actually an interesting market, uh, you know, an interesting business where you could understand the revenue structure, which some startups struggle with that a little bit. How do you make money? We didn't have that. So what happened was we actually had investors want to lean in, but not getting over the finish line. And what that does is just take up a ton of time. Unfortunately, they'd be excited to learn more, but not quite ready. And that's really difficult because you're simultaneously trying to actually move your product forward and continue with actual traction while you're working on trying to big it, you know, bring money into the company. And it's very, very distracting. So we talked a little bit about the features a few minutes ago, and I'd already mentioned that there's pages dedicated to cases. And tell us about the other features, judge analytics. Judge analytics for your state trial court judges. Basically, you, you look at the judge and what we do is we aggregate how they've ruled across all of their cases historically. So tell you some basic information. How many cases do they have that are active right now in front of them on their, on their docket? What are the types of cases that they've heard historically? What do they have experience in? What might you need to educate the judge on? How long does a case sit before them? And then very specific granular motion analysis on motions for summary judgment in employment litigation. How does this judge rule? If the plaintiff brings a motion as opposed to defense, does that change the judge's analysis? For very specific uh, case types, how do they tend to get disposed of before this judge? How many actually go to trial? All the way down to your timing. How long are you? Are, is this case going to be before this judge in this particular practice area? And what does that look like, the difference between, okay, the case is going to get settled and it's going to be a, a dismissal, or you're actually taking the case to trial, which helps you understand sort of staffing and how you, know, how you want to think about the case longer term. So really giving you all of the insight to be able to make strategic decisions at the inflection points of, do we want to ding our judge? Do we want to request assignment to a different judge? 
what motions are going to be the most useful? How should we spend our clients' money that's going to be actually the most beneficial for them? And then that is sort of the analytics side with some really exciting analytics coming up soon as well, which are lawyer and law firm analytics and corporation litigation analytics, which we can talk a little bit about. But the other side of the platform is really the contextual legal research. It is being able to Google search across state trial courts and see how the, the language, when your judge ruled against a particular motion, why? What was the case law he cited? You know, what did she think the legal threshold on this particular issue is? How about your opposing counsel? You know, look up your opposing counsel in the same way you research your judge. What are all their cases right now? How busy are they? What types of cases? Do they take them to trial? This is all information that is available and accessible now and really needs to be utilized uh, during and throughout a case to make sure that you're making decisions uh, based on data, especially when the industry is beginning to really utilize this data right now. And you, you don't want your opposing counsel to be able to have insights on you and your judge in a way that you don't have any eyes on yet. So it's really important to, to have everybody that can access the same data and really sort of democratize how much information you can find out to be strategic from the start of the case. Once a user signs up for an account, one of the first pages they'll see is this kind of master power search. It's like Google. It's like a Google search engine. So one of the things I noticed too is, and you alluded to it, legal research, search for a certain type of motion. How does that work? What's the use case there? Yeah, so there, there's actually a couple of use cases there. So let's say you're looking up a, a summary judgment motion. I would put in, maybe you want to see, has your judge ruled on a summary judgment motion before? So search your judge and summary judgment. Now you're pulling up basically four buckets of data. On, on Trellis, you're always searching four buckets of data. One is going to be rulings, the judge's actual rulings on the issue. One is going to be cases, all of the cases that deal with that issue. One is going to be documents, all of the filed documents in the cases dealing with that issue, all searchable. And then now we have just released verdicts. So it's going to be all of the verdicts with that issue before your judge or whatever the search may be. So the main use case for looking up um, motions is going to be twofold. You want to get insight on either your judge or your opposing counsel and see sort of how they've positioned issues in the past. But the core is how do you draft motions faster, better, and work backwards from instead of utilizing your firm's document management system to pull something that someone wrote that's maybe not on point, maybe they weren't a good writer, maybe the issues were entirely different. On Trellis, you can actually dig in what was successful on this issue in the past. How do I think about how to organize and, and really um, you know, have an outline of what I need to, to draft so that you can do it so much faster and so much better? And that's what's, what changed my practice. It was the motion drafting and being able to find really, really strong outlines and simply use those, cut down hours of the initial rote research of what am I trying to prove in the first place, and instead be able to really spend some of that time targeting, tailoring, making really refined motion. And what jurisdictions are you currently in? So we currently cover 12 states, 362 counties. If you're thinking of across the nation on some of the most litigious states, we've got you know California, New York, Florida, uh, Texas, and then a whole variety, Pennsylvania, or, you know, Ohio. We've got some big ones coming shortly as well, which are New Jersey, uh, Connecticut, and thinking of one other one, but definitely adding con continuously. So when we say we cover a, a state, we generally try to cover about 90% of the population in that state. There's obviously a ton of trial courts. We have to go county by county uh, in order to get this data and aggregate it and structure it. But looking really, the goal is, well, we have a good portion of the, the, the heavy 
litigation states right now, the goal is by the end of 2022, early 2023, that we cover the entire nation of state trial court data. What goes into the decision to add a jurisdiction? I mean, obviously the goal is everything, but how do you prioritize? <laughs> we have to prioritize. Just in, in any startup, all you're doing is, is ruthless prioritization. So we basically take in a sort of a, a couple of control factors. It's going to be the population of the state, the volume of litigation, uh, the type of litigation. Is it is it super substantive? Is it not? The population of lawyers in that. And then you've got the technical considerations. Is it technically very, very difficult to acquire this data? awesome, then we'll have a moat if we can do it. Is it very, very easy? Then it's low-hanging fruit. Maybe we should grab it quickly. So all of those come in to, together for us to really decide to prioritize uh, next states. Let's talk about that because I started in LA, out, out where you guys are from, and I moved to Chicago and started practicing Cook County. And you talked about the tentative rulings. I remember rushing to the courthouse. It was so old. They posted on the wall. You run there to see how, you're, yes. how, how you're, your judge ruled. And then it went online. I moved to Cook County. This blew my mind. We actually had carbon paper in <laughs> the courtroom and the attorneys would handwrite orders after the, the motion call or whatever. Like, So how are you getting information? Let's just start at Cook County. <laughs> Where do you find that information? It's one of the most difficult. So it's definitely a good one to, to talk about generally. In fact, Cook County's uh, court access website has been down for the last 30 days or so. Yes. It's like mind blowing how that can even happen uh, for one day, let alone for weeks at a time and just be accepted by the industry is amazing. The truth is the counties have very limited resources and they have very specific goals and trying to make the data super accessible and easy is not one of their goals. They are there to you know, make sure that the data is uh, publicly available, which in some cases simply means you have to send a human in to the court, right? The blank face that comes over yeah. the clerks, <laughs> you know, they, they legitimately do not know what I'm talking about, have never considered archiving this information. Um, and so it's always really, really interesting to, to me to, yeah. to figure out which counties are doing it digitally. There are a couple of competitors. They're not doing exactly what you're doing, but similar. What differentiates you from them? We focus exclusively on the state trial court system. So there are some other folks um, that have been doing it well at the federal level that are starting to enter the, the state space. We go back 15 years of historical docket data for every county that we cover. Uh, that is not the case for some of the folks that do specifically judicial analytics is what we're talking about right now. And then on the other side, the, the searchable nature of our database for research, the ability to slice and dice case type and judge and issue and get alerted on all of that if you just want sort of trellis to work in the background and let you know when your issue is being ruled on so you can stay up to date. So it's going to be a combination of there are folks to do a little portion of what we do. Transparency is essential to us in this and the data is difficult and anyone who has tried to access individually from state trial courts knows how fragmented and, and how messy and raw the data is. So transparency is essential to be able to trust. And we, you know, lay out on our website, not only the states, the counties that we cover, but 
down to the number of dockets, the number of judge analytics, you know, the number of documents all the way. So you know what's actually powering our, our information. We also just have a vastly wider coverage, and that's because we're focusing only on the state trial court system. So we, you know, our, our attention isn't on trying to get multiple court systems at once and doing an okay job at all of them. We are really focusing on the most difficult, which is the state trial court system. And so use cases outside of legal. I know you got your plate full and you got to build your company, but what are you thinking about? And there's definitely other uses. Insurance companies? I'll be honest. It's one of my favorite aspects of the company. So right now, think about the fact that building this company in private sector legal, the data is the bottom of the pyramid, right? We have to get the data in order to layer on any of the analytics on top of it or be able to monetize in other industries. So right now, what we're doing to acquire the data is what we need to do no matter what industries we're going to be building in, what verticals we'll build in later. But there are so many ways to monetize this data that I get incredibly excited about. So, And we see that because we have basically a, a, a freemium version of the product, right? You Google your judge, you Google your case, you come into Trellis, you see the data, and you decide for yourself if it's valuable and sign up once you determine that it's valuable. We have tons of other industries that come in for other use cases that I'm always watching. So... We have uh, real estate, property management that's looking for basically, you know, information, evictions, collections, anything that might signal risk. Same thing with banks. Uh, a lot of this information is uh, information that could be used sort of in, in addition to some of the traditional risk assessments. Um, financial services to do due diligence on companies to find uh, any information that they should know about before they're investing. The generally sort of news, marketing, PR, and actually marketing is a, a good one, lead gen across industries. We see industries come in to, to utilize us uh, for lead gen for a whole variety of different products. That's been one that really surprised me. Corporations, where are they getting sued? By whom? Uh, what counsel have they used? What counsel would have been better? And then probably the, the most obvious and, and the biggest pull is coming from insurance companies. Who, if you think about it, it's entirely a state court regulated industry and they have all the information on the claim side, but they don't have what happens in the state trial court when they deny something and it goes up on bad faith. And so they can't make the bigger policy decisions that they need to make with the sort of limited data. So we hold a lot of connecting the dots for the insurance industry as well. Nicole, appreciate your time. People want to find out about you and Trellis. Where do you want to send them? So you can visit our website at any point, trellis.law. If you do trellis.law slash search, get in there and start playing with the product. We love that. If you want to reach me directly, uh, you can do so on LinkedIn or Twitter, Nicole underscore A underscore Clark. And I love to chat with anyone. And you can also email me directly, Nicole at trellis.law. All right, that's all we got for this episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can catch us on most major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Google, and most all of the others. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, this has been Technically Legal.